Yell Pilots Playing Tales. The band played on. Charles Augustus Lindbergh led a somewhat controversial life, but it was his fame as a pilot that won the American people over. It was Lindbergh who was the first to fly solo in his specially modified aircraft, the Spirit of St. Louis, from Roosevelt Field in New York to Paris non-stop. On landing, a crowd of 150,000 stormed the field, dragged Lindbergh out of the cockpit and carried him around above their heads for nearly half an hour in celebration of his record-breaking flight. Upon his heroic return to the United States aboard the USS Memphis, a fleet of warships and military aircraft escorted him up the Potomac River into the Washington Navy Yard, where President Calvin Coolidge awarded him the Distinguished Flying Cross. There to celebrate with musical accompaniment was the United States Navy Band. Now, a story about the U.S. Navy band may not seem to be my usual fare in tales, but bear with me, and I must thank serving band member and APG listener Tuba Tony for suggesting the topic for this story. The U.S. Navy band has a long and illustrious history that stretches back to 1798 and the USS Ganges. The Ganges was a fast-sailing merchantman that was purchased by the newly formed navy and taken into service as a man-of-war. Her first captain, Richard Dale, was ordered to assemble a new crew, which was to include two musicians to serve as marines, a fifer and a drummer. So started the U.S. Navy Band. The reason for the inclusion of musicians into military units stretches back to at least the 16th century, when each company of infantry would have a single drummer and fife player. They marched at the head of the company, providing uplifting marching tunes, but more importantly, they signalled orders that could be heard over the din of battle. By the mid-1800s, the fife and drum players had grown into a band and more instruments were incorporated into what became the official United States Naval Academy Band, the oldest band in the U.S. Navy. By the First World War, and under the command of John Sousa, the first bandsman to be commissioned as an officer, the band had branched out into many independent groups in addition to a large ensemble of 350 players who toured the country playing in concert halls around the United States. The Navy band had a growing reputation that spread around the world and it was often included in missions overseas to entertain foreign dignitaries. So it was in the early 60s when the United States was firmly entrenched in fighting the Cold War that one of the fronts in this struggle was South America. Acting on the belief that the Soviet Union was attempting to expand its influence there, President Eisenhower travelled to South America on a goodwill mission dubbed Operation Amigo. 
In support of that mission, 93 members of the Navy Band departed on February 6, 1960 for a 30-day tour to perform at various functions and concerts for the President and other dignitaries. The first leg of the journey was a flight from Andrews Air Force Base to Trinidad, and from there the band was billeted on the USS Macon, a Navy cruiser. According to retired Commander Alan Beck, then a musician second class, over 90 musicians on a cruiser like that was, I think, a bit of a shock to the sailors who were on that ship. They weren't used to having musicians on board. The itinerary for the band showed a busy time. Whilst on the Macon, steaming to Rio de Janeiro, they played for the ship's company, as well as performing arrival and departure honours whenever they sailed in or out of port. They performed at an open-air theatre in La Plata and in the plaza in front of City Hall at Lomas de Zamora, near Buenos Aires. A small instrumental ensemble with their vocalists, the Sea Chanters, performed at a reception by the naval attaché at the Yacht Club. The Sea Chanters were and remain the official chorus of the United States Navy. They sing traditional music, including sea chanters, madrigals and motets. A popular event, the Chanters also performed at a picnic for the crew of the Macon. Then, while the band and the president were visiting Buenos Aires, an unexpected request for an engagement at a state dinner back in Rio de Janeiro arrived. The Brazilian president had invited Eisenhower to an unscheduled reception at the U.S. Embassy in Rio de Janeiro on the evening of the 25th of February. The Navy band were asked to provide semi-classical music for the reception. Early on the morning of the 25th, a small chamber orchestra of 18 enlisted men and one officer boarded a Navy Douglas R6D, a military version of the DC-6 transport plane, for the flight to Rio de Janeiro. It was going to be a long day, breakfast at 0500, and then the 1,200-mile flight. The band could travel in dress khakis, but the men were instructed to take a black bow tie, white mess jacket, trousers with gold stripe, white shirt and white cap, in addition to their instruments. They were expected to be at the reception by 8.15 in the evening, where they would play ruffles and flourishes, waltzes, maybe a Brazilian march, and a little Sousa. According to the orders archived at the Washington Navy Yard, it would go on until after midnight. The DC-6 was a reliable, long-serving, four-engine passenger airliner, which usually had room for around 56 passengers, depending on the version, but could seat more. It was developed during the Second World War, but didn't fly until 1946, and it would become Douglas's most successful four-engine piston-powered airliner. The Navy crew of seven had prepared the aircraft quickly, and then embarked their 38 passengers without delay. They took off from Buenos Aires on time at 8.25 in the morning for the five-hour flight, which progressed without incident northeast up the coast. When they got to Rio, the weather was pretty overcast, but quite reasonable below, 
although as the Navy aircraft began to position for its approach, it would have been in and out of cloud. A journalist, David Richardson, saw what happened next. I happened to glance up at Sugarloaf Mountain, he said, and noticed that it was shrouded in thick cloud. Just at that moment, a big four-engine plane, or what was left of it, came tumbling out of the cloud. It spiralled crazily. The tail and rear section were missing. From the chopped-off fuselage, a whole array of objects came spilling out, as if it were a sort of ghastly cornucopia. I thought I saw a human figure in the falling debris. The plane hit the water with a splash that shot a sheet of white spray into the air. Then came the bizarre sight of the plane's tail section gliding slowly downward in a spiral until it fell gently into the water. Other objects fell at the same time. Then the scene was as placid as it was just before that horrible moment. The Navy DC-6 wasn't the only aircraft involved in this tragedy. The other was a DC-3 of Heal Transportes Aereos. The DC-3 had left Campos at 12.10 for the short flight to Rio de Janeiro. The aircraft reported at Porto das Queixas, about 25 miles northeast of Rio, at 12.58, maintaining 1,650 metres, but unable to stay clear of cloud. He was told to head for the Romeo Juliet NDB, about three miles north of the Sugarloaf Mountain, and the famous Copacabana Beach at 1,800 metres. At the same time, the Navy aircraft was south of Rio, descending from its cruise height, and initially also cleared to approach at 1,800 metres, but then this was changed to 1,500 metres. The time was 1.05pm and both aircraft were heading for the same beacon over Santos Dumont Airport. With no radar, the controller was relying on position and height reports from the aircraft to ensure their safe separation. The DC-3 was climbing up to its cleared height of 1,800 metres and the Navy DC-6 was descending to a lower height of 1,500 metres, with a requirement to call passing 1,800 metres. They were closing on each other at about five miles a minute. Perhaps realising that the aircraft would have to cross in height to get to their cleared levels, and with no accurate way to tell exactly where the aircraft were, the controller changed his mind and reversed the clearances, instructing the Brazilian aircraft to descend to 1,500 metres, and the Navy aircraft to level at 1,800 metres. He did this quickly, without waiting for an acknowledgement from the DC-3, and, in addition, he was speaking Portuguese to the Brazilian aircraft and broken English to the Navy aircraft. Afterwards, the controller stated that the Navy crew were having difficulty in understanding his instructions, and at times he had to repeat them three times, which he did. Non-directional beacons like the one at Santos Dumont are very basic navigation aids which suffer from a myriad of possible errors. 
They have no range readout, so the only position information that can be gleaned is a bearing to or from the beacon or a position overhead when the aerial hunts as the signal is momentarily lost. The loop aerial in the receiving aircraft can give erroneous readings such as sunrise or sunset when the ionosphere shifts due to electrical interference from activity like thunderstorms. Terrain errors from mountains or steep cliffs, which can distort the readings. The shoreline can refract the signal, and congestion of long and medium frequency radio stations can interfere. In addition to these common problems, the beacon that the Navy aircraft was approaching was known to be affected by the long metal cables of the cable car that carried people to the top of the Sugarloaf Mountain. Almost as soon as the controller finished making his calls, the DC-3 reported overhead the beacon at 1,700 metres, descending to 1,500 metres, and the controller cleared it to start its procedural approach. This involved a turn overhead that would take it across the path of the DC-6 twice. The controller stated that he received a report from the Navy aircraft stating that they were overhead the beacon, but it is possible the call was made early due to the problems inherent in those early beacons. The controller cleared the Navy aircraft to descend to 1,500 metres and then to 1,200 metres. There was no recording equipment to corroborate these radio calls, and the controller's initial statement differed in several areas from his final one. Witnesses on the ground state that the collision occurred in a cloud bank, where visibility would have been at a minimum, though there was a hole through which some saw the actual impact, and it appeared that neither aircraft took avoiding action. The right wing of the Brazilian DC-3 was severed, and the tail of the Navy aircraft torn off. Both planes tumbled into the sea, around Rio's Sugarloaf Mountain. All 35 people on the Brazilian DC-3 perished, and of the 38 on the naval aircraft, 35 died, including all 19 members of the Navy band. The three survivors, all in the tail section, were playing a game of poker that saved their lives when the back end of the aircraft was cut from the DC-6 and fluttered out of the cloud to land on the surface of the water. Credit must go to the Brazilian Rescue Services, who arrived promptly and gave aid to the injured survivors. There were two inquiries into the cause of the crash, both of which centred around the communication between the controller and the two aircraft but they were wildly different in their conclusions. The Brazilian Air Ministry report stated that the accident was due to errors made by personnel, namely the pilot of the DC-6, and his improper piloting procedure when flying on authorised instrument flight. They concluded that the pilot disobeyed the instructions transmitted by Rio Approach Control. The Navy report was considerably more detailed and, hardly surprisingly, came up with a markedly different course. 
The investigation stated that the accident could not be attributed to either of the aircraft involved, the manner in which either was operated, or to any significant actions or errors of the crews. Nor did the language problems, the lack of modern air navigation, control aids and the methods of aircraft traffic control used at Rio de Janeiro, although extremely material, attain the status of immediate causes of the accident according to the evidence presented. However, had these matters been different, and in any respect an improvement of air safety, this accident might well have been avoided. These problems were, however, common to the flights of all aircraft in the area and were well known by the pilots and controllers to exist. It was evident that uncertainty on the part of the controller as to the original position of the DC-3 is underestimation of the time factors, including aircraft reaction time, his lack of appreciation of the communication difficulties, and the increasing seriousness of the situation combined to create the conditions which led to the collision. An accident report can never come close to describing the human cost of such an event. One bereaved widow recalled that, as the terrible news filtered in, I was watching TV and getting my oldest daughter ready for school, she said. A bulletin came on the television. I got up and just started roaming around the house and the children kept running behind me. They thought I was playing. The official death notification came that night. She recalled telling her children, my oldest was six, she said. I took her in my lap and I told her that her daddy had been killed and that he wasn't coming home. She cried, and then she got down and went on playing. I remember thinking, boy, I wish I could do that. Pregnant at the time, she went into early labour and was rushed to the hospital where she had to remain for some time. She missed the funeral and has never been to her husband's gravesite. I look back on it now and think, I don't know how I got through that, or how any of us got through it, she said. To this day, news bulletins on the television still leave me anxious. I want to get up and leave the room. Memorial services were held on the Macon to honour the lives and service of those who had died. An excerpt from a special memorial section of the Macon's cruise book reads... They were ambassadors in the highest and best sense, speaking a universal language to the hearts of men without regard of border, breed or birth. What seemed to be a voyage which would be remembered as the President's cruise will always be recorded in our hearts as the cruise of the United States Navy Band. After the crash, the concert orchestra was never reconstituted, but despite the tragedy that had befallen them, the remaining members of the band played on eight more times before they flew home.
If you enjoyed this story, then please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com.